Well, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew 7. Uh, chapter 7, verses 7 through 11 is where we are. Um, if you don't have a Bible, slip your hands up. The ushers are bringing them up, and you can use that one. Uh, it's, we're in it, we're in it. We've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew, and we've been spending time uh, studying that and looking at it. And, and it's, it's interesting because each week I feel like, oh, man, this is a really hard text, or this is a difficult thing to chew on. And, and actually, I think this week is one of those texts, again, where, where I, I, I'm afraid that, that there's, a, there's a massive lie that maybe the church predominantly is believing when it comes to the text that we're in today. And then it's, it's, it's not that we would say this lie out loud. It's not that we would even say, you know, and, and verbalize it, but, but our actions continue to, to speak it and continue to prove that there's truth to this lie. And that lie is, 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 is simply that we believe prayer in action is useless or pointless or doesn't hold any value. We believe that par- prayer is, is, you know, it's funny, if, you, if you've ever said this, I've been guilty of saying this before, well, all we can do now is pray. Like, like prayer is this last-ditch effort that you do once you've exhausted all of your own resources and all of your own strength. In fact, in, in missionaries, when they send out letters, and, and again, this isn't that they believe this, but most of the time, we, they're asking for money, but then they say, but we'd love you to pray for us. And, and it's not that I doubt that they would love for prayer, but it's at the same point that they really need the money to live too. Or, or maybe, maybe, maybe the better way to say this is that, that you have, at times, whether you received a missionary's letter or someone has said, hey, I'm really going through this, and we say, well, I will, I will pray for you. I'm praying for you. We'll put it on Facebook, like, hey, I'm praying for you. But then we actually don't do it. And so, it's, again, it's not that we would say that we believe par- prayer is useless or pointless or that we, that we really don't believe there's any value in it, but we live our lives practically as if it is pointless, as if there is no value as if it doesn't really matter. And, and sometimes Jesus, when he's, he's teaching us stuff, he, he, he relates things to, to something that we can understand. And you'll hear it over and over again as we get further into Matthew. The kingdom of heaven is like. And then he gives us this big, long analogy that makes it just more confusing. And so we don't really know what the kingdom of heaven is like. Or, he, or he'll tie things like he'll say, he'll, he'll tie marriage and the church the church is like a marriage and, and that we are his bride. And, and so you hear this, these analogies. And, and one of the analogies or one of these, these visuals that he uses is the text that we're in today. And he's already used it before. But he talks about God and Father. And he says, God is your Father. And, and that is another one of, those, one of those analogies, one of those visualizations that I think is helpful for us to maybe understand an aspect. But I also think it, it convolutes it some too. And although he's making things teachable, and it's not that I'm questioning Jesus' teaching method. He was the best teacher there was. But, but it's, it's that, that I think sometimes when we try to relate what he said in, in the scriptures and what he's teaching, I think we convolute the message. And when it comes to prayer, I believe that we, unfortunately, most of us would say personally that we believe that prayer is useless. And again, we wouldn't say that out loud and we don't even want to believe that, but our actions prove that. And I think that is completely hinged that is completely a result of our view of who God is. Everything is hinged on that. In fact, you live your life by what you believe about God. You live your life, you act on your life, you move forward in your life by who God is in your life. And that is especially true when it comes to prayer. Especially true when it comes to prayer. And, and everything we understand and, and everything that we are and who we are is grounded in who God is to us. And so let's go ahead and look at this, um, this again in Matthew 7, 7 through 11. 
It says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And so Jesus brings this, this, this text to light, and he's, he hits prayer again, which is really interesting because a couple chapters, or the chapter previous, he's already talked about how we are to pray. And he begins it with this idea of we start prayer with our Father who is in heaven. And so he's already called us, like he's already made a, a, a point of what prayer is to look like in the relationship that's in there. And Mike talked exclusive, a lot about that a few weeks ago um, in the, in, in, when we were in the section of prayer. And he talked about how, how we can approach God as our Father, or we can approach him as a, as a business relationship. And what I wanted to do real quickly before we dig into this text is I think there are, are four ways, and they're not... It's not an exhaustive list, but four ways that we approach God. And I believe if we don't recognize those, we're not going to really understand what the text is saying. And again, like I've already said, how we approach God, what we believe about God, will dictate everything in our life, especially prayer. And so again, this is not an exhaustive list, but there's, there's four ways we can view God. Um, we can view him as a genie. When it comes to prayer, we can, you know, it's, it's, it, we didn't really earn anything. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to invest anything, but he's just there. And he's there when we ask, you know, we want, hey, this is what I want. I want, a, I want a better life. I want a better this. And we just expect him to get it because we're entitled to that lamp that we found. We found God and therefore we're entitled to his power in our life. And therefore we ask and God does it. And if he doesn't do it, it's like bad genie, right? You're a bad genie. And, and we don't have to invest anything in him. We just, we just have a genie that we walk around. And so when we want something, we ask for it. I remember when I was little, I used to always think, like, if I ever had that lamp, I remember watching Aladdin, and I'd be like, if I had that lamp, I'd just ask for a hundred more wishes. Right? It's a whole thing. I don't know if that, how that works. But, but the point is, is that it would never be enough. If God is a genie, he's never going to, to do enough because a lot of times the asks are so ridiculous and astronomical that, that it's not even what his purpose is for your life. And so the first wrong view that we have of God is, is that he's a genie. The second wrong view is that he's, he's, a, he's this celestial slot machine. Meaning like, we, we just pump enough quarters in and keep pulling that handle and sooner or later, something's gonna happen. And the way that plays out in our life is if I do enough good things, God, I've lined myself up. Look, I did this and I did this and I did this and I asked and I asked and oh, look, now you have to give it to me because I performed. You don't think that's true? How many times in your life have you ever prayed, God, I will never do X if you just give me Y? It's a performance-based. If I just do enough, sooner or later, I win. And I get what I want. And so we view God as if he is, he's up there like we just need to play the right scenario of quarters. We, need to just, we just need to set the circumstances enough. We need to control the situation enough. And then we win. And so we approach God as if he's some slot machine just waiting to bless us, but we just have to have the right combination of how much we've asked or how much we've done or what has happened in place. And that's a wrong view of God. You can't, you can't work your way into the right standing of that. That's what Jesus has been pointing out this whole time. And the third wrong view is, is, is a tricky one. It's that we view God as daddy, which is weird because he just said that we're supposed to pray our father in heaven. But see, here's the problem with this visual. 
is that I say dad or daddy, and every single one of us have an image of a dad. A dad that was good, a dad that was bad, a dad that, that hurt us, a dad that was existent, maybe a dad that was non-existent. See, the problem is, is that most of our visuals of our earthly fathers, whether they were existent or not existent, good or not good, we see shortcomings in them. We see how they failed us. I can still remember instances when I was getting in trouble for my dad when I was really little. They're like visually painted. And I probably deserved it, to be honest, but either way, it's still, it's still hard and it still would taint the view I have of how perfect of a dad he is. See, the problem with, with us viewing God as daddy, and, and maybe this is different for men and women, and this is a, a very basic generalization, but, but men predominantly aren't very emotionally or, or intimate, intimately connected to their fathers. So with God, it's very much a respect thing and stand back, and there's less intimacy because he's, well, he's dad. You respect him, and you hold his space. And we, you know, we talk about football and none of the real stuff. That's a very basic, very big generalization. I get that. But similarly, maybe, maybe for women, God is, or dad is, is, is this emotional dad that needs to be there and he needs to be, and he loves me and he, 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 he t- tells me I'm beautiful and he does all those things, but we forget that the dad also needs to discipline and dad also needs to be respected. And again, that's a very broad generalization, but, but the problem with God being daddy is that we think we can sway him. I have two beautiful daughters and here's, here's a picture of them, right? I mean, how do you say no to that? They can be like, I want a liter of Coke before bedtime. It's like, okay, I love you. You know, like, here you go, take it. And the, the problem is I can be swayed. I, I love my children. I want what's best for them. But a lot of times I give them what they don't need. And a lot of times I discipline them in ways that was wrong. They can manipulate me. They can sway me. I can do the same to them. So I'm not a good example of God as daddy. So the problem with this is that we believe if, if God is our daddy, which he says, okay, he's the father, that's great. But if he is our dad, then it's like he has to be in our life and he wants what's best for me and that's what it is. He, he does, he wants what's best for you, but according to his will. And you're not gonna be able to sway him and manipulate him and pouty face him into submission to you. And so I, I think the, the wrong view is, is that that we, 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 when God is just our dad, we, we convolute it with the mess we have of our dads here on earth. And the mess I'm making in my children's life. I don't want them, I want, I want to point them to Christ and I want to be the best dad I can, but I am going to fail them. So God can't just be our daddy because then that means he can fail us. Then that means he can bail on us. Then that means he, he's going he's gonna to mess up. And so I think the proper view, the right view that we are to have of God, if we're going to apply this text today, is that he is all-powerful God who is our Father. He's still, Jesus still pulls us to a relational level. He still says, look, here's the all-powerful God that knows every single detail about you. And as children of him, as people that have surrendered their life to the person and work of Jesus Christ, you are adopted into his family and you are now able to call him dad. But he's all-powerful. He's perfect. He's sovereign. He's in control. And if I view God in that light, it makes it relational. But yet I understand he's still all-powerful. If I approach God as an all-powerful God who is my father, then I recognize that he knit me together in my mother's womb. 
He knows every single thing that I need and when I need it to bring the most glory to him so I can come to him as my father who won't let me down, who won't fail me. He's there for us but truly knows what's best for us in all areas of our life. So who is God to you? Is he a genie? Is he a slot machine? Is he daddy? Or does he happen to be all-powerful God who is your father? Because if you can't answer that, the next set of scripture that we're going to hit is kind of hard to, to, dis, to understand and to discern in your life. If you, if you aren't sure what he is there, then, then this next sex, section of scripture is going to seem kind of pointless. See, because he tells us, he tells us, okay, we know that he's our father. In fact, when he tells us how to pray, our father who is in heaven, right, hallowed, majestic his name. My dad is awesome, but he's not in heaven, and his name is not majestic. So there's a huge distinguishing difference between dad on earth and heavenly father. And we have to understand that. And then he says, ask seek and knock. And this is an interesting set of scripture. I was going to play the old song like ask, seek, do you know it? No? Okay, apparently I'm older than that. Some weird old song that talks about ask, seek, and knock, but it would have obviously fallen really hard on the ground <laughs> to reach this crowd. But the point is, is, is that, is that there's, this, there's this continuation that he's doing here. And when he says this ask, seek, and knock, there's this progression in it. It's that each one is meant to go with the next. It's a present imperative, so that what that means is essentially that we're supposed to say it's more like asking, seeking, and knocking, meaning presently we are to be asking, presently we are to be seeking, presently we are to be knocking. And it also happens to be a command, which is interesting. So Jesus is essentially saying ask and, and seek and knock. And so let's look at these words. The first one is ask. Literally means to posture myself as less than. I'm going to bow. I'm going to bend below, recognizing that who I am speaking to is greater than I am. It is, a, it is a stance of humility that I recognize that whom I'm speaking with, that, that who I'm asking of, I am not worthy to stand on the same level as. In fact, every time that Jesus talks about prayer and how we are to pray, he uses the word ask. When Jesus talks about prayer, he talks about how he inquires, meaning that he is God and therefore can stand in the presence of God and, and, and speak with him at a totally different level. For us, asking is we are humbly below. I bow. It's an, it's an attitude, an earnest plea. Petitioning of one, recognizing that, that we're lesser than the one we're petitioning. It's, it's, the word means to beg, to implore, to beseech. Asking is literally this recognizing that like, I need you. I need you, and therefore I'm going to ask. Begging God. Asking in, in that we simply make our requests known to God, meaning that, God, we know that you're there, and therefore we're going to ask, and we're going to continue to ask, and we're going to keep asking. And our answer, our reward is an answer to prayer. But then he goes after he says ask, then he says this word seek. And, and by itself, it's, it's okay, it means one thing, but, but the progression of what he's doing here points out that not only are we going to ask, but seeking is to search, to inquire, to want to know the will and the purpose of God. Seek is careful investigation to in, obtain something very, very valuable from someone. 
See, seeking is asking plus acting, implying earnest petitioning coupled with an active toiling to fulfill those needs. So it means that, God, I'm going to ask you this. I'm going to want to know this. I'm going to beg of you, and I'm going to inquire. I'm going to look into your word and find out what it means to live according to it in, the, in this relationship, in this situation. It's to, to, to earnestly want to know the truth and the will and the purposes of God. It's, it's not only am I going to ask and just sit back and go, hopefully someday he'll answer that. It's I'm going to ask and I'm going to seek him in it. I'm going to search to know more of him. Not look to some random stuff, but I'm going to look to him and literally inquiring and trying to dig out the words and find the truth and asking for a spirit to discern in us what is truth, what is his will. So to ask and to seek means that you're going to come to a God who is your father, and not only are you going to present your request before him, you're going to search his scriptures. You're going you're to toil. In fact, it's a prioritization in your life. Maybe, maybe the better question is, do you even prioritize prayer in your life? Seeking means I'm going to reorient everything that I'm doing so that I can focus on knowing his will in this. Not going to just kind of hope it happens and go about life and just, you know, throw up a prayer every now and then. Seeking is I am earnestly wanting, persistently wanting to know what his will is. And then he says knock. Knock means, surprisingly, to rap at a door for entrance. Pretty basic. <laughs> but it means to do so in a repetitive, intense way. Which if you've ever sat in an apartment or somewhere and you've had heard, or you've sat in your house ignoring someone who's knocking and they sit there and they knock and they knock and they yell, I know you're in there. Like they keep knocking, they keep knocking. It's annoying, right? It's incredibly annoying. That's the kind of knocking that Jesus is talking about. It's a persistence and you know why? Because it's, it's a standing in confidence that God is there. I'm going to keep knocking because I'm confident that God is an all-powerful God and my Father, and therefore he has commanded me to knock. So knocking is this, is this, is this repetition. It's this, this continuous thing. And also, by him saying knocking, he's basically clarifying that there's going to be resistance in your life. And maybe this is where prayer falls flat on its face with us. Is that we start praying for God's will and resistance comes and we run. Throw our hands up. God must not be present. He didn't answer it in time. But when he says knock, he's, he's basically promising you two things. One is we can be confident that God is there. Two is resistance will come. It takes us knocking. This idea might imply praying in the face of difficulty and even resistance. If you knock like this, your desire for entrance must be very great indeed. Do you get the picture? It's this idea of whatever you're going through in your life, seeking to understand how God's will and purpose can be done in that, and then persistently knocking. Knocking. So again, ask. Disciples, we should come to God in humility and awareness of need. We should seek him, which connects one's prayer with the responsibility of action in pursuing the will of God. And the knock suggests perseverance. So we persist in prayer, confident that, their father, that our Father will provide whatever is best for us according to his sovereign, gracious will. 
So ask with confidence and humility. Right? Seek. Seek with care and application. Knock with perseverance. So what Jesus is doing is he's setting this case. If God is truly all-powerful God who is our Father, then come ask. Then humble yourself and just present it before him and then seek inquiring his word and knowing who he is and what he wants for your life, what his will is. And then knock. And then like Jesus always does, he does such a great job of this, he illustrates for us he illustrates for us this point, and he uses the example of, of heavenly fathers to, to, to or, or heavenly father to our earthly fathers. And he says, who of you, you know, who of you, would, if you're a dad, if, you're, if, you're, if your son asked for a piece of bread, are going to give him a stone instead of, if my daughters came and asked for a piece of bread, the only thing I would say is it gluten-free, because they have to have that. But I wouldn't give them a stone. It's kind of a hyperbole. He's, he's using, it's, it's comical. Here, chew on this rock. It, it might be good. He says the same thing. If they're asking for a tuna fish sandwich, why are you going to give them a snake? And he's basically making the point. And then he says this line. He says, he says who, you who know how to good give, give good things who are evil. I mean, what he's basically saying is you are lesser than God. You are not in a level playing field. You are imperfect. You have failures. You have shortcomings. And you know how to care for your own children's needs. And then he asked the most beautiful question ever. He says, if you know that, then how much more would your heavenly father give good things to those who ask? And I love that he doesn't say this much more. He just poses the question, how much more? We don't know really how much more, but we know it's more. In fact, we know it's immense more because the statement right before of us being evil, we are substantially less than God. But how much more? Would your heavenly father, your perfect, sovereign God, who is your dad, give good things to those who ask? So then, how, do, how are you approaching God? Is he your genie? Is he your slot machine? Is he just daddy? Or is he God, who is your father? See, because if you can approach him that way, then this text makes a whole lot more sense. Mike said a few weeks in talking about in prayer, he said, no one would dare wake the king for a glass of water in the middle of the night except for his child. And see, here's the thing. It would be silly for us to come to a God who isn't our father and ask for something and expect something in turn. But because Jesus makes it a relationship, and says, yeah, he's all-powerful. You're right, he has, the, he has the, everything, you know, we can sing the song, he's got the whole world in his hands, right? Like, he's got everything under control. But yet, you're his child. You matter to him. And you know what he commands of you? Well, then ask. Persistently. Keep seeking. Don't give up. Keep coming to me and keep asking. You're not a burden. You're my child, and I know how to give good things to you. Way better than any other earthly father could. God talks immensely about how to pray in scriptures, which if you're okay at math, that means that two things. Essentially, we have to read his scriptures to understand prayer, and two is you actually have to pray. Those both have to happen. First John talks about um, 
us having a confidence before God. He, he just says beforehand, we have an advocate who is in Jesus Christ, meaning that Jesus is, is standing, stating our claim, not pointing at our imperfections or how good we are, but pointing about how good he is. And he says, because of what Jesus has done, because of who he is in our life, we can approach him with confidence in 3, 21 through 22. We have a confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. See, here's, here's the tie, and, and scripture ties this over and over and over again. If you truly desire to, to, to have God's will in your life, then you would desire to obey God, right? The Holy Spirit that you, you claim lives inside you, that, Jesus, that God says lives inside you when you surrender your life to him, it desires obedience to God's word. So it is going to pull you and push you and, and, and lead you into obedience for God. And that's what he's saying here. He's like, look, obedience and asking go hand in hand. You want to know the will of God, then live the will of God. I love the story of Job. I'm going to butcher it because it's a lot of chapters, but I'm going to tell you the whole thing in like three seconds. But Job, essentially, if you've ever read the Bible, you've read Job, and this account is really weird because, because, Jesus, because God is like bragging to, to the devil about Job and how righteous he is. And the devil poses this question, well, he's righteous because he has everything. He has everything. We'll take it from him and then, then watch him. He will surely, surely forsake you. And God says, okay, you can do. And there's a series of long, ridiculous things from children dying and boils and sounds really horrific. And you're like, whoa, I, this, uh, there's a lot in there that's amazing. And, you, and you, it's a really, really good thing to hear. But I'm doing it no justice. So he, he does all these things and life gets horrible. And in that time when life is horrible, he's getting boils and his kids are dying. He's losing all his money and all his cattle and animals are dying. And his, his wife comes to him and she starts asking these questions like, what are you doing? Just just say what you did in sin. Just confess it. Just say it already. And she's, she's being persistent. And at times, she kind of starts being feisty with him, which I think wives are good at, right? And they're like getting feisty in your face. And like, what are you doing? And he has to, that's a good thing. It's a good thing that wives are feisty, okay? And he's, he's, he's fighting with them. And then his friends, well-meaning friends, come around him. And they love God. And they're saying, you've obviously sinned. You've messed up. You're, you're, you've done something. Just, just say it already. And Job keeps defending. I know I haven't. Like, I, you know, and he's, he makes claims like, I came into this earth naked. I'll leave this earth naked, you know, but God is still God, and he says all these things, and then his breaking point comes, and by breaking point, I mean at some point, he finally starts going, you know what, 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 what's going on, like, are you kidding me, God, what's going on, and I love this, because God answers him in about five chapters, 38 to 41, and he says, or four chapters, and he says, a very, very long series of pointed questions at Job, but the very first one, see, and here's the thing, Job spent time asking and seeking and knocking and trying to understand God's will and trying to understand God's will, but it flipped. At some point, he stopped trying to understand God's will and he felt like he deserved something. And so the very first question God asked him is, hey, Job, where were you? Where were you when? When I created the earth. Where were you when I created you? Where were you? He starts posing all these questions saying, Job, you don't know anything compared to me, but I love you. And what's amazing in the story is at the end of it, he's, he's more blessed beyond what he had ahead, ahead of time and, and everything's great and everything. But, but what I love about this is that God answered him. Is that God, that God took the time to communicate to him. But, but the problem is, is that you and I, in our seeking and asking, a lot of times we try to take the place of God. I know better. Therefore, our seeking and our asking is no longer, God, I want to know your will. It's, God, this is what should be happening. 
I got it all figured out. Just do it this way and I'll be happy. Set yourself up, you know, to, to, to follow me, God. I think that's when God says, wait, where were you? Because if we believe the all-powerful God who's our father, then we have to believe things like he knit you together in your mother's womb. He knows you better than you know you. You can't lie to him. He's not shocked by your motives. You don't like switch and go, whoa, I never saw that coming. He's all-powerful. He's God. But he's your father and he wants to be intimately relational with you. And he does that through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And then Jesus comes and commands and says, now ask, seek, knock. And here's the thing. Prayer doesn't influence his purposes, but I do believe it can influence his actions. God has a purpose and a will. But he invites us. He invites us to, to plea, to beg, to come before him as his children. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's a posture thing. Maybe it's just something that, again, that Jesus continually points to our motivation in our heart. Maybe it's just us recognizing that we don't know what's best for us all the time, but God does. So I'm gonna humbly come before him and say, God, I'm, I'm not seeing which way is up right now, but, but I'm, gonna, I'm gonna seek your word. I'm gonna look for truth in here, and I'm not gonna let anyone misinterpret it, and I'm not gonna try and just land on what I knew before, but I'm going to try and learn more and more and more of who you are today and how your will will apply to my life today and tomorrow. And I'm going to keep on knocking. Jesus has given you freedom to be that annoying knocker when it comes to God. A lot of people will wrestle with this in the text before him because he talks about the Pharisees and their many words or the Gentiles and their many words and the Pharisees and their repetition. He's not, saying, he's not saying just repeat the same thing over and over again. They had no heart behind it. They were just saying, if I use the right words, then it'll happen. If I say it the right amount of times, then it'll happen. No, the point is just keep doing it. Your heart is in a position of humility, and it's, God, this is a desire. I long to be married, God. Ask. Seek. Knock. I long to be healthy, God. Ask, seek, and knock. The point is he's inviting you to pursue that. The band's going to come up and we're going to worship some more. But maybe we just need to remember one very simple thing that Jesus told us in his prayer and that Jesus lived, and that's, God, your will be done. See, I think it's, it's interesting because it's easy for us to say that, but it's a totally different thing for us to actually surrender to that. And I love that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is sweating blood and intense and our, our fully human, fully God is, is, is personifying and showing some kind of anxiety and fear. It's a big thing. Pay attention. He's sweating blood and he says, I need to pray. I need to inquire from God. And he sits down before God and he says, God, if there's another way, please do so, but not my will to be done. Your will be done. And then you know what he does? He surrenders to his will. He doesn't just say it. He doesn't just say your will be done and then starts trying to figure out how to answer it his own way. He says your will be done and surrenders to that process. I recognize that some of you in here are in a hard spot. Your marriage is falling apart. Health is, is really hard. Everything is, is, is difficult right now and you feel like you've been asking of God over and over and over again. My encouragement to you is to ask, 
to seek and to knock. In fact, his command was that. And maybe, just maybe, nothing in that situation may change. But that's when we have to remember that God isn't just our Father, but that He's God. And we can keep saying we believe that and living a life that isn't surrendered to it and then be frustrated with Him when He doesn't ask, answer our prayers. But this promise is to disciples of Him. This promise is, is to people who are surrendered to Him. So how do you approach God? Who's God to you? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are um, big. You are faithful. Forgive us for believing the lie that prayer is useless. Forgive us for believing the lie that that it's a last-ditch effort. Please, God, forgive us for not seeing the value in coming before you as our Father who wants to be in relationship with us, who completed that relationship for us through Christ. God, forgive us for not coming to you humbly. Forgive us for for coming with our own terms and our own conditions and not surrendering to your will in our life. Father, you are a God who is all-powerful. May you be that in the lives of every single person here. God, for those that, are, that have been battling illness for so long, would you show up? Would we seek you in that, God? Would you, would you, would you heal in a way that brings only glory to you? Father, for the relationships that are burdened or destroyed where people have just given up on praying because they don't think it's purposeful, God, would you break our hearts for those relationships? Would you remind us that no one is too far gone, no one is out of reach of your grace, and that you are a God who is the Father God, for the, the marriages that are falling apart or unraveling, God, would you remind us of the image of your church and Jesus Christ in our marriage? And for the children that have gone wayward, would you remind us to continue to pray for them, to ask fervently? You, don't, you are not offended by us desiring our kids to love you. You are not offended for us to desire to have a right relationship with people, God. May we trust that. May we, may we come before you humbly, May we seek you persistently. May we knock with perseverance, even when resistance comes, knowing that you are there, confident that you are a God that hears us, you are a God that's our Father. God, I rebuke in the name of Jesus the lie that you are not our Father, that you are not our God, and that you are not sovereign and in control, and that you do not hear us. So may we ask with confidence that you hear May we inquire your word. May we know and seek and desire your will. May we, may we delight our hearts in you and watch you give us the desires of our heart. I pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.